Welcome back to Mid Wretched. What up, it's guys? It's an actual episode. We missed Season you. Two. Season two. Bye bye. I was singing to I was singing to Murder Beagle all day today. Aww. He wasn't really amused by it, but I. <laughs> Anyone out there who has children or is tangential to children will understand that I spent my entire day singing in canto songs with my now four-year-old that is my uh tuesday plan for my tuesday Mm. client is we are going to be singing in canto songs all day it's so good and the songs are so good like that's all she wants in the car and that's fine that's totally god we love a good disney musical don't we oh boy do we yeah we also watched frozen 2 today yeah and it's better than Frozen 1. I think you'd actually really like it. Okay. I can give it a try. I just, I really disliked Frozen 1. I think you would like Frozen 2. Red is coming out and I'm so excited. Oh, you know what? It is exciting. It's a whole movie about a giant red panda and sensory processing. And I love it <laughs> That's so, so cool. I love that. That is so cool. <laughs> well, friends, here we are back at Midwretched. Yay. And I am sitting currently in the Midwest, which I have not really been able to do very much for the past several months. The, so The Midwest has missed you. You came right in time for mud season. I know. <gasps> My white Nikes know. Oh, yeah. I had to throw away a pair of Adidas because they just gave up the ghost to uh, mud season. I didn't so even sad. get to tell you our basement flooded. <gasps> oh, no. I mean, it was mostly our fault. <laughs> oh, jeez. We did a really <laughs> bad job. Okay. So, like, we have, like, a, 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 what is it, a split-level house? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, our basement is all underground, obviously. Well, basement, like, whatever, living room. <laughs> um, and our above-ground basement. <laughs> God, I sound so dumb right now. But there's, like, so there's, like, a walkway and an entrance into the, like, below-ground basement. And, like, the entryway <laughs> goes underground. Well, I guess, like, whatever. In fall, we did a really shitty job of cleaning up and, like, winter prepping because this mm. is our first time ever having to do it. Yeah. And so, like, the drain and the door and that whole, like, fucking area. Oh, geez. Just yeah, built up with, like, house. leaves and dirt and snow. And so when we had mm. our big melt, all of it just, like, melted mm. into the basement. Yikes. So our fault. Learn something new about this house. Yeah, no kidding. Ordering a shop back on Amazon at my next paycheck. Good. <laughs> Good. <sighs> we have some flooding, too, in the back part of our house, which is really sad because it's the oldest part of our house, mm-hmm. and it's what feels haunted and makes me feel like a good spooky person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's leaking, and it's really sad. That's sad. Yeah, it is. <sighs> Welcome but to our indeed. lives. This is what we do. Yeah. It, anyway, yeah, this is our first time back in a while, so we're getting back into the swing of things yeah getting our wheels back on here if you're and new to mid wretched we tend to do a little small talk for the first five ten minutes anyway yeah not usually ten minutes yeah. that's way too much small talk for a podcast I, but five minutes usually we do yeah i cut it if it gets too long but yeah we're midwesterners yeah. and you have to have small talk first yeah you know it's like when somebody says like oh time to go and then <laughs> four the hours later <laughs> yep this is my husband and his family to the letter. It's so cute. Oh, the driveway goodbyes. I can't. Oh, my gosh. I've hated them since I was a child. Me too. Me too. And I just am like, I, I have to, like, when we say it's time to go, 
I have to put in my head that we're not actually going for another hour, <laughs> you know? This is when I learned how to Irish goodbye from my Irish family. I love Irish goodbye, yes. Yeah. Peace. Anyway, yeah, so we spend about five minutes talking about the weather and Midwestern mm-hmm. tropes, and then we talk about true crime here. Yeah, that's basically the gist of it. Yeah. So um, I'm really excited to come back with a case that I think that you are going to have a lot to say about. Yes. I have a lot to say about it. It involves a lot of teenage girls. Oh, great. My favorite. So I know. I was like, oh, we're going to get to like talk about your dissertation in this episode. <gasps> Ooh, I'm so psyched to know about Jeff's or what case this is. I'm guessing that you probably know the broad strokes of this case, um, but maybe not. Where are we going? Where are we going? Well, um, I'm finally back home, so we're going to Indiana. <gasps> are we going to Gary, mm-hmm. Indiana? No, we're not. We're oh, going okay. way south. Oh, okay. Way south. Okay. We're going to Indiana that's almost Kentucky. Oh, okay. Kentuckiana. Mm-hmm. Kentuckiana. We're going to, like, that, you know, tri-state, Ohio River little area down there. I feel like that was our last big case that we did. Leslie Urban, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was. It was. Very much similar region. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Pretty. Pretty, pretty, pretty. Yeah. This time, we're going to that area, and we're going to the early 90s. Love it. Love yes. it. You're in my yes. prime I know. You're prime. You were three. (laughs) (laughs) The prime of my life when I was four. The prime of my nostalgia. (laughs) Yes. Well, what I was realizing as I was kind of researching this case and looking a lot of media around this case is that I feel like my new theory about, like, generational time movement is that there are so many fewer differences between people like you and me that, like, graduated high school in, like, the early 2000s mm-hmm. than people, you know, 10 years older than us that graduated in the early 90s. Yeah. Like, I feel like because the the gulf between, you know, like, us that graduated in 05 and kids that graduated in 2015 couldn't be bigger. Yeah. And I think the difference is obviously technology, oh, right? 100%. Like time moves slower without huge, huge, huge technological advances in the picture. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So even though I was like, you know, when this case happened, I was five years old. So many of the cultural touchstones or four years old. So many of the cultural touchstones felt very, very um, acute to me. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with just like there's not that big of a difference. I know all of our like Gen X people are going to come at me about it. That's fine. Um I just think, like, the cultural experiences and the teenage experiences that we're going to talk about in this episode hit very, very, very close to home to me, even though I am a lot younger than these people. Okay. That's always an interesting thing to me. So my my oldest sister is, I would say, a generation older than me. She's in the Gen X. I'm tried and true millennial. Yeah. But in terms of, like, our high school experiences, other than, like, family trauma, you know... I don't think that, I don't think, like, our actual, like, social experiences were all that different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you two are, like, very, very different people, Mm -hmm. the world that you were, like, going about in Mm -hmm. was not that hugely different, especially from a teenage point of view, which is specific to my case today. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's get into it. You ready to get into it? I am so ready. So, uh, today is, it's going to be a tough case, um... It's definitely vivid and ugly stuff, but I think some really interesting discussion could be had uh, around the goings on in this case as well. So I am going to open my story with reading to you uh, two love letters uh, between two people featured in this case. Okay. 
First letter goes, Shanda, I really had a great time with you last night. I look forward to more. Please don't cry no more, okay? Love, Amanda. Amanda, I loved last night too. I want more and always. You can only cry when here, okay? Can I have something to remember you by? I want what we had last night if you want. Will you accept my ring if I give it to you? Will you wear it? Love, Shanda. So those are two letters exchanged between two young girls uh, in rural southern Indiana, New Albany, Indiana. Mm-hmm. New, I'm going to talk about the town just a little bit, just the region. Um, not a ton. I just want to kind of build a picture as we do here on Midwretched. So New Albany, Indiana is going to be where our victim is from. Although the case itself kind of spreads itself um, kind of a, in about a 50-mile radius in this region, uh, we're in the very, very, very southern tip of Indiana here. Mm-hmm. So when I think about, like, New Albany and these towns like that, I think of them honestly as, and I think they're structured very much as, like, suburbs of Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. So just north of um, the Ohio River border that, you know, separates Indiana and Kentucky down there. And what I noticed looking at, you know, stories about this case and looking at, you know, Google Maps and all this kind of stuff, looking, researching this town, uh, is that New Albany is just about as middle America as you can possibly get. It's very middle class. It's very, like, kind of bedroom community. It's obviously very quiet looking. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> lots of, like, cookie cutter little streets. suburban sprawl, all that stuff. Um and, like, a lot of, like, cute little neighborhoods, very, like, livable, and just, like, a, a wisp away from the open fields and rolling hills of beautiful southern Indiana. Okay. Oh, beautiful. Yes. So, if you can appreciate that kind of beauty, uh, it's a gorgeous area. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you ever gorgeous, want to go for area. just, like, a quiet drive, just go to southern Indiana, Kentucky. Yeah. Totally. That, like, you start to get that, like, kind of almost Appalachian foothills feel mm-hmm. um, in the southern parts of, like, Indiana and Ohio that I think are just, uh, it's just beautiful. I think it's so beautiful. But I think it's also very much the kind of town where, like, kids growing up in that place cannot wait to leave, you know? A hundred percent. Which, like, I heard a lot from, like, my high school kids in South Bend, you know, because I moved mm-hmm. to South Bend and I love South Bend. I feel very passionately about South Bend. Um, <laughs> but... Like, my kids would be like, oh, I cannot wait to get out of here. And I'd be like, someday you'll come back. But probably they won't, <laughs> you know. In your old um, man voice. Yes, <laughs> right. I <laughs> mean, is that not, like, like, the most relatable Midwestern experience, though? But I hate this stupid oh town. Gosh. I'm never coming Can't back. Can't wait to get out of this place. For yeah, me, it was kind exactly. of true, though. For me, it wasn't. But I grew up in a really, like, vibrant, interesting place. And when I left, I was brokenhearted. But... Mm-hmm. That's neither here nor there here. So uh, we are in New Albany, Indiana. It is August of 1991. Okay. So uh, 12-year-old Shanda Scherer is one of the letter writers that I read. And she has just moved to New Albany with her mom, Jackie. Uh, They were living in Louisville. And in Louisville, Shanda went to a very small Catholic school. And when they moved to New Albany... They uh, enrolled her in Hazelwood Middle School, which is a very, very large public school. So a huge different kind of culture shift for Shanda. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to say Louisville a little bit more Southern. Louisville. (laughs) I'm for, I I don't know. Am I doing okay? You're doing all right. You're doing all right. (laughs) All right, cool. Uh, I don't pretend to be Southern. I'm from the Midwest. Today I definitely said Chicago and I could feel how 
I could feel how Midwestern it was as it was like midway out of my face. And I was like, I'm so embarrassed right now. But I have to learn how to embrace who I am. So from what I could gather, I would basically kind of conclude that Shanda was a little bit in over her head in this massive, massive middle school. We are going to spend some time reflecting on just how awful and weird an age like 12 is for girls uh, in a minute here, because I have a lot to say about that. I have. Um, I wrote a dissertation on it. I know, you literally did. <laughs> um, but I want to kind of just kind of paint the picture of who Shanda was like as a kid, right? So... Uh, when she was at her small Catholic school in Louisville, um, she was very, very involved. Mm-hmm. She played sports. She loved basketball. She was a cheerleader. I believe she also played volleyball. She got good grades. She was yes. popular. Yeah, she just was, you know, a successful middle school kid. She um, loved, she obviously had a love for um, glamour shots. When you look at some pictures of her from back in the day, she was... She was all about the glamour shot. Oh, we love those. We do. I do we know do. this case. I do know this case because I've seen some, I, I I've seen some of the pics would. of her. Yeah. Yeah, I figured you would. I hope that some of the case is not totally burned in your memory, so I have some surprises for you. But even if not, it's really good for discussion, I think. Yeah. So uh, she had this, like, what I was really took away from looking at pictures of her and stuff like that is that she just, like, lived that late 80s early 90s style like if you can picture oh the quintessential hairstyle of that age oh i can that was shanda and that was like the bottle of hairspray that got her there man like it got so freaking saved by the bell absolutely and she was just a really cute beautiful little girl honestly like when i was just like looking at pictures of her and like interviews with her mom she's just a doll just like a really cute kid um a really really cute kid so, but I will say, like, at Hazelwood, I think that she went from being a pretty, like, on top of it kid to being kind of a tiny, tiny fish in a big pond. Um, and I think it was a lot harder for her to get involved. And that is where so many of the events that kind of took this case off the rails in many ways kind of started. Mm-hmm. Um, her grades slipped. She was getting into some, you know, minor trouble here and there. Uh, which we'll talk about kind of as it's relevant. There are some ways in which it's not relevant. And uh, I guess this is now a good time to talk about sources. There are a a couple of books about this case. The one that I kind of dove into was Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. Coolest name. Um, And there's also an episode of The Deadliest Decade about this case. uh, And that was really good as well. So if you want to you know, get some faces to these names. Uh, I definitely recommend watching that, uh, watching an episode of that show. Mm -hmm. It's the first season, episode two. Yeah. So uh, before we get into like a lot of the nitty gritty of this story, I want to really, really remember that Shanda is 12 Mm -hmm. years old. Okay. She's a 12 year old girl. Being a 12 year old girl is awful. Literally the fucking worst. The worst. You could not pay me anything to be 12 again. Anything. No. What was your experience like being a 12-year-old girl? Um, Anxious, depressed, awkward, terrified of the world around me, no social skills. Nobody felt the need to explain to me what a panic attack was. Uh, I was adopted by a friend that was an extrovert, and that was Mm. literally the only thing that got me through. Mm. Um. Yeah, 
like no ability to communicate what was happening in my brain or in my body and no ability to understand the world around me. Yeah. Yeah. It's so impossible. Right. And I remember, um, did you end up using it as your title? I always remember from your dissertation, the one little girl who talked about being in the plasma zone. I don't, I didn't use it in my title, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I kept thinking about that when it came to this case. And I also kept thinking about Britney Spears because yeah. I'm not a girl, not yet a woman is basically what it's like to be 12 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So insertion, Tommy line edited. <laughs> My dissertation. I did. My dissertation was on essentially relationships and identity development in adolescent Mm -hmm. girls and pre-adolescent girls, which is exactly what we're talking about here. And the mental health impacts of this whole process that it sounds like we're going to go on. But yes, ma'am, it is being a 12 year old girl is nothing is solid around you, but it's almost like you're expected to be. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Especially relationships. Yes. Relationships make no sense at 12. Because, like, when you're little, everybody's like, well, I mean, I I, I had no social skills to begin with. But, like, friendship seems very black and white Mm -hmm. when you're little. But then it's almost like the second you hit, like, fifth grade, it's not anymore. And you know what, like fifth grade is like my first moment I can remember like girl on girl rejection and being like rejected by girlfriends. Oh, mine was second. Oh, Oh, poor baby. (laughs) (laughs) Poor baby. But I also like, I I felt really strongly about this case, um, thinking about Shanda as a 12 year old, because like my experience as a 12 year old was like internally very similar to yours. Mm -hmm. But externally, um, a girl that hit puberty very early. Yeah. So, like, when I was 12 and in, um, I skipped, it didn't help any, but I skipped 7th grade and went right to 8th. So, I was Mm -hmm. a 12-year-old 8th grader. Um, But I definitely had, like, a very uh, grown-up body Mm -hmm. by that age, but very much much not so a grown-up brain, right? Yeah. Um, But I remember being, like, sexualized very, very early Mm -hmm. by... Uh, you know, like disgusting men in public and things like that. Um, but having like no way to compartmentalize that as yeah. a 12 year old. Right. So, you know, I, I looked one way and felt another. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's always really interesting to me. I was, I was a very tall, skinny, lanky. Like I went from basically being a very chubby child to mm. suddenly being tall and lanky. And I was very, very much a tomboy, always wore oversized clothes. I was never comfortable in my body. Mm. So I didn't experience that same sexualization, but I remember it very acutely happening to my older sisters. And I think that the kind of baggy clothes was always a bit of a defense mechanism against Mm. them that. Yeah. Yeah. And I always, I've always been a a clothes girl. Mm. Um, And I just like, I found myself really identifying very strongly with Shanda because I felt like in many ways... I could have been a Shanda, like mm-hmm. internally extremely confused, but externally looking way more ready for the world than mm-hmm. I actually was. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us more about her. Yeah. When we think about 12 years old, I really want to just keep that in mind. Like that, that strange in between zone mm-hmm. um, that those, those girls are in the plasma zone. Um, so 
we'll talk about Shanna's life a little bit. Shanna's mom, Jackie, uh, I love her. We'll talk about her later. Um, she and Shanda's dad, Steve, were not together, but they were both remarried. Um, and it sounded like they co-parented, like, fairly, um, you know, compatibly. Uh, Steve lived in Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is not too far from New Albany, which is part of the reason that Jackie moved Shanda there, uh, was to be closer to her dad. So that it was easier for them to split time. So Shanda had basically, like, two good households that she was a part of, um, both of her, her dad died pretty tragically. I'll talk about that as well later. Um, but he really seemed like a good dude, pretty solid guy. Um, his wife seemed like, you know, pretty on top of it as a stepmother. I don't think she was particularly close with her dad's wife, but she wasn't, um, like a harmful person. Um, and Jackie and Shanda were, were very close. Uh, Jackie had a couple of marriages, um, but I think that she kind of, she would say in interviews that Shanda was like her little best buddy. Like they were just together all the time and um, definitely reminds me very much of my little girl too. Just like mommy's little Velcro mm-hmm. baby. And I kept thinking with this case too, like I remember the first time that my little girl, like anyone ever made a comment about how beautiful my little girl was. Mm-hmm. And she was an infant. Like she was like. 16 months old yeah and it just like it shook me to my core that somebody could already be thinking about like the sexual future of a 16 month old baby that's weird it was awful i'll never go back to that furniture store again (laughs) so anyway uh at hazelwood shanda kind of got herself involved in some drama um i think in some ways because she wasn't really able to like fall into things like she did at her old catholic school so um she got into some drama she there's some conjecture about her relationships with boys. Uh, none of it is substantiated. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of rumors that she was, you know, having sex with a lot of boys, um, boys her own age as well as older boys. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but in the social context of it, other kids certainly thought that she was. Do you, I don't know if this was true for you, but I feel like rumors about sexuality reached their peak in middle school. Oh. 100%. Like, and everybody yeah. had a rumor about who had sex with who. And again, yes. you were 12. Yeah, yeah. Um, and teaching in middle school, um, that, that's very much, I think, a universal experience. Mm-hmm. 100%. It's very awful as an adult to have to, like, quash those rumors um, in, like, a middle school teaching context. Awful. Um, anyway, so there's kind of a pivotal drama piece that Shanna got herself involved in that again, was kind of a, another domino in this case that would fall. So one of her new friends was having kind of a little bit of drama with this boy, Nathan, and didn't want to approach Nathan to give him back some, like a token of his affection. They were like going through a breakup or whatever. Um, so Shanda said, I'll approach him for you. Okay. So Shanda approaches Nathan and things got heated between her and Nathan. There was an argument. Um, Nathan's cousin, Amanda Hevron, who was 14, jumped into the middle of the argument. Um, and so she and Shanda got into a bit of a tussle and both ended up doing some stints in detention, ISS, that sort of thing. Um, Amanda was kind of a regular in the discipline cycle at Hazelwood. Um, Shanda was not initially, but would come to be. Um, so what ended up happening was that Amanda would kind of intentionally get herself in trouble when Shanda was so that they could be in ISS together. Um, and what happened is, though, even though they didn't get started on a good note, they ended up kind of sparking a romance between those two girls. 
Um, Amanda was very much like an out lesbian. Um, Shanda had never hinted at her to like at her sexuality to her family. Um, what her mother Jackie said in some interviews I saw was um, that she did not particularly care if Shanda was gay or not. Um, but she is very firmly and she still to this day holds the belief that Amanda was kind of grooming her um, and manipulating her um, yeah. into a sexual relationship. Okay. And that um, Amanda was kind of in a position of power over Shanda um, and that uh, Shanda was was basically kind of manipulated into a sexual relationship with Amanda. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Curious for your take on that later. Because we're going to talk a lot about like culpability when it comes to this case. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if I would have enough information to say anything about that now because obviously like there's a lot that plays into mom's response Mm, absolutely yeah yeah and also early 90s indiana not a great place to be gay yep yep exactly which is also a big part of the story Mm -hmm. is going to be about like kind of counterculture um in the early 90s Mm -hmm. especially with these kind of small town girls so um basically though like kind of the the slippy slide that shanda's behavior was on caused some concern for Jackie. So Jackie did go ahead and take her out of Hazelwood uh, and enrolled her into um, a Catholic school in New Albany called Our Lady of Perpetual Help, which is not super relevant to the story. I just really appreciate Catholic names for things and needed to throw that in there. I do too. Uh, Yeah. Beautiful. Jackie was actually uh, an alumna of that school, so she was very familiar and felt very comfortable with, like, the curriculum Mm -hmm. and the environment and the culture and The administration and the I hope mm-hmm. in my head there were nuns that had been there for 50 years. And... Oh, I guarantee there were. <laughs> I, I guarantee it. Um, so while that move did kind of help Shanda's, like, discipline track record, it did not quash the relationship between her and Amanda. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, much of this case actually centers on, like, notes passed between teen and preteen girls. They would kind of keep writing notes to each other, often through, like, the literal U.S. mail. <laughs> Um, which I love. If anybody ever goes back and reads my preteen like notes to my friends, I would cringe. Oh my gosh. So I much know. Cringe. Oh, so much cringe. So much cringe. Um, cut this. <laughs> but anyway, back to back to murder cases. <laughs> Extra anyways. So Extra anyways, cutting all of that. Yes, please. Um so I do want to say when it comes to, like, looking at these journals and letters, like Shanda's journals and the letters between her and Amanda, whether or not Amanda was grooming Shanda, Shanda wrote those letters very much in a way that tells you that she was a girl who thought she was in love. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like, whether or not there was something more insidious going on uh, on Amanda's part, it is clear to me looking at those letters that that's not what Shanda thought was going on. Right. But that's what most grooming victims sound like, though. Very true. Very true. Their letters are suggestive that their relationship was sexual. I would say, if not literally physically, then at least in their imaginations and conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not they actually, you know, quote unquote, did anything. We, you know, we have some, he said, she said about that. that I'll talk about later. But um, I'm just going off of what we knew kind of at the point that things happened. So... And again, like, Jackie kind of as her mom was, like, watching her kind of change, right? 
and become kind of increasingly troubled seeming um, and kind of withdrawn and, and stop being her little Velcro baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to kind of at this point just say that like as complex as being a teen or a preteen lesbian in Smallton, Indiana in the early 90s must have been, it was made much, much, much harder by a third girl that we're going to introduce to the mix now, Melinda Loveless. Mm -hmm. So Melinda Loveless uh, was 16 at the time, uh, and she was the ex-girlfriend of Amanda Heverin. So uh, Melinda Loveless, I'm going to talk about her backstory a little bit later, but she was 16, but she still was a Hazelwood student. She had been held back at one point, so she was you know, still involved in that school. And so she was pretty obsessed with Amanda Heverin um, and was very, very, very jealous of their relationship. So uh, one kind of crucial event that kicked things off was that there was a dance in early October of 91 uh, at Hazelwood that Heverin, Amanda Heverin and Shanda went to together. There was some like kind of petty, like Melinda wrote a note to Amanda that was like, uh, unless you're going to the dance with me, don't go to the dance, mm-hmm. basically. And Amanda was like, oh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. And then she took Shanda mm-hmm. because Shanda writes a letter that's like, I would love to go to the dance with you. Right. Um, teenage drama kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The problem to Melinda Lovelace's brain was that she and Amanda Heverin had never actually, like, officially ended their relationship. So she saw Shanda as basically, like, kind of a homewrecker. Oh. Um, so initially, Melinda's tactic was to kind of try to befriend Shanda um, and be like, you know, if you were really my friend, you would not be messing around with my ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, and when that didn't work... Melinda Lovelace's tactics became much darker. She, uh, at one point, there was a festival in late October that uh, Amanda and Shanda went to together. Um, it sounded like they had a very, very lovely time. It was like a homecoming, kind of fall festival sort of thing. And uh, having seen those that couple there together, Melinda very openly threatened Shanda in mm. public that she was going to kill her. Yeah. So, um, Amanda Heverin is a very interesting character. Again, she's 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Melinda Loveless, um, also put in letters to Amanda that she wanted to kill Shanda. She said, I will kill her. Oh, wow. Plain as day. Plain as day. So, uh, what Amanda Heverin says that she did, and she holds this to this day, Uh, was that she gave those letters to an authority in town, a youth prosecutor. I take that to mean that she uh, contacted somebody at Juvie. Yeah. And um, shared that Melinda had made those threats. So Amanda wrote those letters or Melinda wrote those letters? Melinda wrote the threatening letters. Okay. Shanda told Amanda about the threatening letters because... You know, Melinda was Amanda's ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to think about, like, the age differences between them. They're 12, 14, mm-hmm. and 16. Yes. Which, yes. when you you pull back, those two years between each doesn't seem like a lot. But, like, we've mm-hmm. been talking about, like, that age difference between 12 and 16 is drastic. It is. 
But in the middle school context, mm-hmm. it's not as drastic as you want it to be. Well, and I also think that Melinda was held back to two years, mm-hmm. I think, right? She had a late birthday, and she was held oh. back, and there was her childhood was real messed up. I'm going to talk about that later. Okay. But, okay. So I, I, I just I wonder about Melinda's emotional maturity, and if we, mm-hmm. you know, if I look at it as just you're 16, you should be more mature than this. Is she really right. though? Right, right. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just, when I think about this case, I think about this particular year that I taught eighth grade when I had a girl who was 16 in eighth grade and she was turning, she turned 16 that fall. I remember it very, very clearly because I remember like watching other girls decorate her locker and seeing sweet 16 on there and being like, how is that even possible? Mm -hmm. Um, And then realizing that it very much was, you know, the situation but, you know, this 16-year-old girl who was in eighth grade was very much so, like, dating 12- and 13-year-old boys mm-hmm. because that's who she was around, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it was very, very, very confusing. Um, and it gave you the ick for obvious reasons. But it was always, like, an ick with an ellipses. Like, where's, where's that line when everyone's an eighth grader? Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, like, if you... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Talking about this just earlier today about like different levels of development and your cognitive mm-hmm. development versus your social versus your emotional development when those don't all meet your age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when they when they land in really, really different ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, you know, being a woman, being a human person is also very much a physical experience. And yeah. so... Like, I think you also cannot subtract the importance of, like, where somebody is at physically and how that can mess with any one of those strata, too, you know? Uh, Yeah. Both your own and what other people perceive of you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, these girls. All right, these girls. So, uh, Amanda Heffern takes letters to the quote-unquote youth prosecutor um, and is told that a meeting will be arranged with uh, Melinda Loveless and her parents as well as Shanda and her parents. To anybody's knowledge, that meeting did not happen. I will say that there is nothing on record on any paper anywhere that says that Amanda actually went to an authority about this. Okay. Um, but it was also the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just kind of leave that to interpretation. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that is the, the drama background. Okay. So I'm going to fast forward us now to the night of January 10th, 1992. Okay. What happens on that night is um, incredibly frightening. Now, uh, there are four girls involved with this night. Um, I want to make sure I have everyone's correct first and last names for us. So we got Melinda Loveless. Mm-hmm. You've got Laurie Tackett, Hope Rippey, and Tony Lawrence. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these four girls pile into uh, Lori's car on that night of January 10th. Under the direction of Melinda Loveless, who had become friends with Lori Tackett, because what they had in common was being two kind of alternative lesbian girls in Smallton, Indiana. Okay. Mm. Um, I didn't want to spend a lot of time diving into how these girls look, because I think in some 
representations I saw about this case, it was extremely reductive. Okay. Um, yeah. And I didn't want to... I didn't want to go there because I just felt like it did kind of a disservice to the, the case. Um, and I'll talk about why I think at some point here. But um, Laurie Tackett very much looked the picture of like alt culture in the early 90s. She was very much like, um, she was very punk rock. Okay. I probably would have been obsessed with her. <laughs> yes. Yes. She was um, kind of gangly. She had a very, very, very short very, very bleached hair, um, wore all black, very goth, um, lots of, you know, kind of jewelry suggestive of interest in the occult. Basically, either you or my style icon in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Would have been obsessed with her. Would have stared at her, and it would have been awkward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I provide that description simply because at least... To these girls, somebody like Lori stood out like a sore thumb yeah. in the town and the area that they were in. Yeah. Okay. Melinda Loveless did not visually stand out like a sore thumb mm-hmm. for any of those kinds of reasons. She was, by all accounts, a beautiful girl. Um, and, and truly, she was. She looks like Julia Roberts. <laughs> um, and she had a hard time in some ways because... She didn't look, quote unquote, like a lesbian, <laughs> which was so, a thing in the in like the early nineties, like oh, straight up. Yeah. So even though she and Laurie had a lot in common, kind of both being you know uh, LGBT in this place and time, they initially didn't like each other because Laurie like didn't buy it that Melinda was actually gay. Um, oh, the early stages of like queer identity development. Yeah. Like culturally yeah, totally. and personally. Oh. Yeah. I know, right? That's why I thought you were going to dig into this pretty, pretty oh, hard. Oh, I'm so fascinated. Yeah, yeah. So I just bring that up because I think that that contrast is really interesting, and we will talk a little bit more about that when we talk about each of these girls later. Um, so on that night, um, Lori is driving. Now, I will say Lori is 17, so she is the oldest girl involved here, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, Lori is driving, and she's with her two friends, Hope and Tony, okay? Lori is friends with Melinda. Neither of the other two girls had met Melinda prior to this night. Okay? Okay. But Lori's like, oh, you're going to meet my friend Melinda tonight. We're going to have a good time, whatever. Um, So they go and they um, pick up Melinda. When Melinda gets in the car, Lori says, we're going to kill a little girl tonight. Yep. Direct quote. The fuck? Yeah. So uh, at that point, Melinda shows a knife and says, we're just going to scare her with it. We're just going to scare her. Um, Now, Melinda and Lori had already made a plan, basically, to at least scare Shanda. Mm -hmm. If not, do her great bodily harm. Um, And Melinda explained to the other girls in the car, like, look, she's been trying to steal my girlfriend. I want to, and she's trying to like look like me. She's trying to emulate me. I'm trying to take her out of the picture, basically. So we want to scare her. Mm-hmm. So they cook up this scheme um, where they're going to go to Jeffersonville, where Shanda was staying with her dad for the weekend, mm-hmm. her dad, Steve. Um, and they were going to go and pick up Shanda and tell her 
that Amanda wanted to meet with her. And that was how they were going to get her out of the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So uh, it's very important to note that Tony and Hope had never met Shanda before this night. This was the first time they would ever meet Shanda. Had Lori ever met Shanda? No. No. Okay. But Lori had at least heard of Shanda before this night. Yeah. Because she was friends with Melinda. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So basically what Lori and Melinda have Hope and Tony do is go up to Shanda's door and say, hey, we're friends of Amanda's. And uh, if you come up, come with us, we'll take you to go see her. She wants to go see you. She's hanging out at the Witch's Castle. Mm-hmm. Well, the Witch's Castle. Oh, go ahead. I was about to ask you what that was. Ah, well, the Witch's Castle is. Sounds kind of like a place I would hang out as a teenager <laughs> as well. Uh, basically, it was like an abandoned uh, kind of ruins of an old stone house um, from way, way, way back. Uh, in the kind of forest slash country um, of that area in a town called Utica, Indiana, uh, kind of overlooking the Ohio River. Uh, yeah. I want to go there now. I know, right? I tried to Google Maps and I couldn't find it. Um, it was definitely a popular place for teenagers to go and, like, do, you know, alternative teen things like hold seances and smoke weed, stuff like that. Smoke weed and, and do a seance. Yeah. Right. Uh, which still in my 30s, I, I would do. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Husband, take the kids. I need to smoke weed and do a seance. <laughs> I mean, I set up all your candles and crystals, girl. I know. I know you did. I noticed you didn't touch my tarot cards. <laughs> Where were your tarot cards? Upstairs. Oh, I didn't go upstairs. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't clean the um, upstairs. <laughs> yeah, it didn't need it. It's, it's fine up there anyway. Yeah. Um, people anyway. that were a little bit less creepy would call that area Mistletoe Falls because lots of mistletoe grows there. Boo. Well, mistletoe's um, poisonous. That's true. So that's, that's fine. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. right. It's, it's still, it's low-key creepy. Um, Secret creepy. Yeah. So, even though Shanda had never met Tony and Hope before, she's 12, and look, teenage girls do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, I'm a friend of a friend, and I'm also another teenage girl, I have no reason to distrust you, right? Um, yeah. So, I've, I've, I've seen some kind of critique of this, like, why would Shanda, like, talk to or go with girls she didn't know? I could see any 12, 13-year-old doing that. I could see a lot of them doing that. Yeah, maybe not any, but I could definitely yeah. see some. Maybe yeah. not any, but yeah, I, I, I could totally see it happen. Yeah. But Shanda's like, look, my parents are awake, alluding to Steve and, and her stepmother, so I can't come out right now. If you come back after midnight, I'll I'll sneak out. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve had told Shanda, Steve had already gone to bed um a little while later at about 11 30 he just told shanda make sure you go to bed by midnight turn off the tv yeah so um when they got back to the car melinda was pretty mad that they didn't bring uh, shanda back but they were like okay like she's gonna come later let's kill some time uh they ended up actually going to louisville and going to a concert um at like a um a skate park that often hosted punk shows again not that different between 91 92 
And 2002, 2003, right? I can literally see it in my head. The only yes. thing different is the shoes and the bagginess of the pants. Yeah, but I can, and like, my jewelry. body is, like, instinctually starting to mosh, like, just thinking about yeah. it, you know? Yeah, like, I can hear that pop-punk accent coming out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where are you? <laughs> that was real good. <laughs> Thank you. I've spent a lot of time practicing. Um, so they all, all four go to this, this punk show, um, in Louisville, um, and eventually, you know, around midnight or so, they get back in the car. Again, all this is happening in about a 50 mile radius. We're talking like kind of ping ponging, like, you know, 20, 30 minute drives, which again, is a teenager with a car. Yeah. Very much a typical weekend night. that's weird in that region, it is not. It's not. It's very much your weekend. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, so in the, in the car at that point, Melinda very clearly said to the four girls, to the other girls, the other three girls at first, she said, I can't wait to kill Shanda. (laughs) Then she backtracks and says, oh, I'm just going to scare her. I'm just going to scare her. Yeah. Yeah. Of course she does. Yeah. I'm guessing she's reading some fear on their faces. Um, I'm guessing somebody's like gave her a look and she's like, oh, I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. I'm just going to scare her. Yeah. At this point, um, you know, they come back to, to Shanda's house at about 1230. And um, Tony is like, I'm not going to go up and get her. I think Tony saw some fishiness happening and was like, I don't really want to be a part of this. Yeah. I'm not going to go up to her. Good on you, um, Tony. Uh, yes, I agree. So Laura or Lori and uh, Hope went to the door. Obviously, Melinda can't go to the door because then Shanda is not going to go somewhere with Melinda, right? <laughs> At this point, Melinda hides herself under a blanket in the backseat of the car. Shanda then comes with them and piles into the car with the other girls. And Hope tells her, like, oh, Amanda's just waiting for you at the witch's castle. We'll go down there. Um, but Shanda agreed with a little bit of hesitance to come with them. Melinda's still hiding under a blanket. Hope at that point starts to kind of ask Shanda about her relationship with Amanda. When Shanda starts talking about like, yeah, we're dating. She's, I love her. She's really wonderful. Melinda springs from the back seat, literally like jumps out like a jack in the box um, and puts the knife to Shanda's throat and starts grilling her about uh, Amanda. Are you having sex with her? Stay away from my girlfriend. All this stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they did intend to go to the witch's castle, and they did drive there in Utica. It's very, very rural. It still is very rural out there. Yeah. Um, and so they go there, and Lori is, like, obviously kind of having fun. Like, she's laughing and, like, making light of it. She talks about, like, the legend of the witch's castle and all that stuff and how it used to be, like, this, like, coven that was there and everything. And she goes there all the time and channels spirits and stuff. Um, what happened at the witch's castle was obviously very terrifying if you are Shanda Sharer. Yeah. At the witch's castle, um, it, it's very obvious quickly when they arrive there that Amanda is not there and something insidious is going to happen. Mm-hmm. The girls then bind Shanda, uh, her arms and legs with rope. Melinda starts, like, dancing around her, and Lori starts dancing around her, like, with the, uh, with the knife. 
taunting her, uh, threatening to cut off her hair, basically trying to scare her. They start stripping her of her jewelry. She's wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. They, they take off her watch. Um, Lori then starts to say that the witch's castle is filled with skeletons and yours is going to be next. Lori then takes out a t-shirt from her car. It's a black t-shirt with a smiley face on it and sets it on fire, laughing. Again, to scare Shanda. Yeah. Um, fuck. The thing about the witch's castle is that it is not that far from, from the road. Mm-hmm. And Lori starts to be like, oh, wait a minute. If I start this fire, we're going to be seen. Mm-hmm. So they put Shanda back in the car. Okay. Um, they've got Shanda in the car. And she's just begging, begging, begging to go home. Melinda is still taunting her. Tells Shanda, take off your bra. And gives it to Hope Rippy, mm-hmm. who then takes off her own bra and wears Shanda's instead. That's weird. Yeah, it is very strange. It is very strange. Um, at this point, they stop at a gas station. I, I believe to get snacks um, and because they were lost. Lori goes inside the gas station to ask for some directions. Um, and Tony ran into a boy that she knew and kind of chatted with him for a few minutes, but didn't say anything about what was going on that night. Did not allude to, um, the abduction mm-hmm. whatsoever. Um, so they're kind of, they're just driving around, like, at this the point, they're just driving around aimlessly, like with Basically. a kidnapped girl. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm trying to imagine this situation like as it plays out and putting myself in the headspace of Shanda and also in the headspace of any of the other girls in the car Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Melinda and Lori are very much like hand in hand on this I believe Um, Hope is driving the car she's taunting Shanda Um, she's she's playing a part Mm -hmm. Tony is trying to stay out of it but not enough to leave it feels like tony is in like that freeze mode of just Mm -hmm. like i just need to get through this i just need to get through this i just need to get through this yeah yeah and like they do stop a couple of times at different gas stations and everywhere that they stop uh tony at least recognizes or knows somebody um, at each of these stops, mm-hmm. but again, like continues to not not ask for a ride. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I just think there are some the I can't imagine what was going through her head, but I think that 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 idea that she's probably frozen it feels very uh, like spot on to me. Yeah. Like I just need this to be over. Just get through this. Get through this. Get through this. Mm-hmm. What was and the I'm other sure girl's also name? A sense of disbelief. I'm sorry. Hope. What, what was the other girl's name? The one driving. Hope. Hope. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what's going on through her head too, and like, yeah, because she doesn't seem bought into it, but, but she's still doing it. Like she, she was the one that put on Shanda's bra. Mm-hmm. She's the one that like has her Mickey Mouse watch and is like playing with it and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I think it's just very, very, very confusing. Yeah. 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 Okay. What happens next is just really, really terrifying. Um, So 
basically they're driving her aimlessly. Finally, they make their way back to the town of Madison, Indiana, uh, which is where Lori Tackett lives. Mm-hmm. There are some woods in that area, and uh, Lori seems to know it relatively well. Knows where there's going to be um, like dark roads and paths and things like that. So uh, Lori then leads the crew to an empty abandoned building uh, in a, a in the woods, basically. Hope and Tony stay in the car. They don't get out of the car at this point. Um, So Melinda and Lori are outside with Shanda, who is still bound by rope. Uh, They first force Shanda to strip, and they begin to beat her mercilessly, mercilessly. Um, So they're beating Shanda. At one point, uh, Melinda like slams Shanda's face into her knees multiple times. Um, And Shanda is taking an incredible amount of physical um, pain at this point. Uh, Melinda at this point takes out the knife and starts to try to slit Shanda's throat. The knife was too dull to slit Shanda's throat. Yeah. Hope Rippy runs out of the car at Lori and Melinda's command. It's unclear whether it was Lori or Melinda that made the request that she come out of the car, but she came out of the car. And she is told to hold Shanda down. She holds Shanda down while Lori and Melinda basically take turns using the dull knife to stab Shanda. Oh my god. Yeah. They stab her several times, mostly in the chest. And then they take the rope that she was bound with and um, strangled her until she lost consciousness. They believe at this point that she is dead. Mm -hmm. And they cover her body with a blanket and they put her in the trunk of the car. At this point, they go to Lori's house because that's where they're close to. Mm -hmm. They go inside, they have some snacks, and they change their clothes and they wash off a little bit. At this point, they're, they're upstairs in Lori's house, and they hear screams come from the trunk of the car. Shanda is still alive in the trunk of that car. Lori takes a knife from the kitchen, goes back outside, um, opens the trunk of the car, and just blindly starts stabbing Shanda um, until she's quiet. She comes back in the house. She's covered in blood. She washes herself off, and then she takes out some runes and reads the girl's fortunes with the runes. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. What she tells the girls is that Shanda is dead, but the girls are all going to be okay. (laughs) Sure. As in, they're not going to get any trouble. They're going to be fine. Nothing is really going to happen. It's in the runes. It's in the runes. At this point... It's now we're in the wee hours of the morning. It's about two, two thirty a.m. What happens next is an interesting, and I don't know what anyone's mindset was at this point. But basically, Melinda and Lori get back in the car that has Shanda's body in the trunk. Hope and Tony stay behind at Lori's house in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. What Melinda and Lori tell the other girls that they're just going to go cruising. And drive around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, while they are driving, 
they hear that Shanda is still making noises in the back of the car. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. She is crying and kicking a little bit. Um, there's also a sound that they describe as gurgling going on in the car. Um, uh. So Lori stops the car again. Yeah. Um, stops the car again, opens the trunk. When Lori opens the trunk, Shanda sits bolt upright, covered in blood. And Lori Taggett beats her with either a crowbar or a tire iron until she claims that she can feel her head cave in. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. When she gets back to the car, she tells, she describes uh, to Melinda the feeling of thrill that she got from feeling Shanda's head cave in. And she demands that Melinda smells the tire iron that she bashed Shanda's head with. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This repeats itself one more time. As they are driving around again, believing that Shanda is dead, Shanda makes more noises from the trunk. They come back out, beat her again with a tire iron. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This is a night I don't want to, I don't want to in any way, shape, or form, like, how do I say this? This was torture that this girl went through. Uh-huh. This, yeah. this was an absolute act of torture that she went through. And it's like, um, you don't want to drag it out, and you don't want to, like, tell every, like, do the gruesome details just for the sake of the gruesome details, but... Right what this poor girl went through this poor 12 year old mm-hmm. oh jesus fucking christ i want the severity of it to be very much known yeah yeah because what she be went known. through yeah what she went through was not like a couple of girls beating her up and she died mm-hmm. what she went through was hours and hours and hours of sustained torture yeah because there's no way that you can sell that this was an accident or this was a misunderstanding or this was you know a moment of passion no no no. It was none of you can't. those. No, you can't. Uh, at this point, it also becomes very confusing about who the real ringleader is. Yeah. So, um, Melinda and Lori come back to Lori's house um, kind of right before dawn. They're driving around for a long time. Shanda was, at that point, silent by the time they get back to Lori's house. They come back, and the two girls are still, the two other girls, Hope and Tony, are still at Lori's house. Um, and... They describe to the other girls the the violence that they inflicted on Shanda. At this point, um, Lori's mom is like, why do you have all these friends over? Get these girls out of here. <laughs> and um, basically decides to drive them home. Whoever wants to go home can go home. But uh, instead of doing that... They drive to um, a site in the woods off of uh, Lemon Road uh, in the countryside outside of Madison, Indiana. They take Shanda out of the car again. Shanda, at this point, is still living. Are you fucking kidding me? I wish I was. Oh, my God. 
She's barely hanging on to life, but she is still living. I do know this case, but I always, I don't know. I just, I can't wrap my head around how long she lived. Yeah, she lived through this entire night um, and this entire morning. So, um, Tony Lawrence stays in the car. She refuses to come out. She refuses to look at Janda. She refuses to participate in uh, the kind of the rest of the goings on. Mm-hmm. she's still present and again like there's some complexity there um even though melinda and Lori are very much the ringleaders of this situation hope rippy is given a bottle of windex mm-hmm. and sprays it into the dying shanda's eyes and laughs at her saying you're not looking so hot now are you So Hope is very much, to my mind, a part of this, even though she didn't wield the tire iron. Yeah. She still was not only a part of this violence, but a part of the cruelty. It's, you know? It's like, to, to a point, she remains a bystander, but not really. Like, yeah. she starts to participate. Maybe it's rather benign things but she participates she participates yeah and at this point like if you can imagine and i I, these are not crime scene photos i would advise looking at no no. but they are out there um and what ends up happening to shanda's body is horrific but even at this point before the rest of the torture i'm about to describe to you if you can imagine what Shanda would have looked like, mm-hmm. again, you're not looking at a girl that's been, like, kicked around a little bit. This is a girl who has had her head bashed in, who has been beaten severely, attempted to be strangled, all of these things, right? This is not, like... I, I what I, The point I'm getting at is that I think Hope knew very much what she was looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. So, at this point, they... Uh, Melinda's like, we have to get rid of her, we have to get rid of her, we have to get rid of her. Let's burn her. So they drive to a gas station. They purchase a two liter of Pepsi. They chug the two liter and then fill it with gasoline. They then drive to the rural spot on Lemon Road. Um, take Shanda out of the car, who again is still alive. Carry her to a field uh, near a dirt road, basically. Hope Rippy pours gasoline on, on Shanda. Allegedly at Lori Tackett's uh, command. And she is then set on fire. They get back in the car and begin to drive away. Melinda is afraid that she was not yet dead. So they drive back, pour the rest of the gas on her, and light Shanda on fire. Melinda was correct that before that second trip back, Shanda was not yet dead. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Shanda's final cause of death was smoke inhalation. Mm-hmm. So she was very much so alive when those girls set her body on fire. I can't believe that. Yeah. Those girls then went to McDonald's for breakfast. And even went so far as to make jokes about, like, likening Shanda's body to a breakfast sausage. Mmm. At this point, they start to panic, uh, or at least 
um, Hope and Tony start to panic. They are dropped off at their houses at the end of this complete ordeal mm-hmm. um, while Lori and Melinda go back to Lori's house together. Then Melinda calls up Amanda and tells her that she killed Shanda. She just tells her straight up. The fuck? Yeah. This is when these girls start talking. Mm-hmm. So uh, the girls start talking. Melinda is telling uh, Amanda what happened. They have another friend of hers come over. Her name was Crystal. Um, and they told her what happened as well. Amanda, of course, does not believe. Because how could you believe that? Yeah, how right? could you believe that? So Amanda's like, I don't even believe you. So they go to pick up Amanda, and they show her the trunk of the car, which is obviously uh, bloodied. There are bits of flesh in the car, um, things like that. And Amanda was terrified, Mm -hmm. absolutely terrified, but agrees to not tell anybody what she saw. I don't know if everyone is just terrified of Melinda Loveless and Lori Tackett. But, yeah. I don't know. I think that there's an amazing power that teenage girls can wield over each other. There is. There is. Like, it's this really kind of distorted, like, group decision making Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. led by one person Mm -hmm. and driven by fear. Yeah. And... It can lead you to make the worst decisions ever. Yeah. And I think that there's a level of just, like, denial and dissociation of, like, no, there's no way that what just happened could have happened. Right. That can't have been reality. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's not going to be this because this can't be real. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also... And I don't know how this is now for for kids now, but I feel like um, there's a, something really, really beautiful about female friendship, mm-hmm. um, especially when it's mature and not terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when, when you're a teenager and a young person and you have like a strong set of, of girlfriends or like a, a best, best friend that you're obsessed with. Um, that there is like something that happens in those relationships that makes you feel like you would do anything for that, that girl. And I think that the idea that your brain doesn't let you face what would happen if you didn't have this friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. like so much of you and honestly, it goes beyond just a sense of identity. It, it's a sense of safety. Like, yes, I'm yes. safe with this person. Like, exactly. I start off by saying, like, the only reason I made it through middle school was because of, like, my one friend that just adopted me and decided that I was going to be her friend. Yeah. And and, and I mean that with all truth. Hi, Amber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for our logo. Thank you for our logo. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I really, really mean that with all truth. Like, mm-hmm. and the idea of facing not having those people. Mm-hmm. Friendships can be great and beautiful and growth producing and they can also be terrifying yeah yeah exactly exactly and i think like you know when i was a teenage girl like in high school i was really obsessed with my two best girlfriends mm-hmm. you know? oh completely yeah yeah and i 
I would, I think at that point, if you had asked 15 year old me, if I would do anything for Michelle, Mm -hmm. I would have said yes. Yeah. You know, Um, I don't think I would have done this, but I think it's also one of those situations where like, like if you are, for example, Tony and -hmm. sitting in the back of that car, terrified, trying to close your eyes and grit your teeth through this whole night. Mm -hmm. I think we all often have fantasies about who we would be in like extreme situations but at the end of those, at the end of the day, those are fantasies, right? We don't know exactly. how we're going to be in a situation of ex- extremity like that, you know? And I think that a lot of people might listen to this and or stories like this and be like, oh, I would never, I would never be that person. I would have gone to the cops immediately, this, that, and the other. You don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know what kind of fear, anxiety, rejection, anything that would be going through your head. Exactly. Exactly. I think we'd all like to think certain things about ourselves. 100%. 100%. And most of us are lucky enough to never be tested and never have to think outside of those fantasies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you're Tony in this situation, I'm sure that in her, you know, 15-year-old brain, she never in a billion years would have thought that she would go through something like this. But I'm I- certain that she thought, I love Lori and hope and they're my best friends you know yeah and there's all of the cognitive distortions that come into play and i'm sure that she was at every chance in her head be like well at the next stop i'm gonna say something Mm. and i'm gonna go home well no i i couldn't at the next stop i'm gonna do something or this can't really like Lori's not that bad of a person there must Mm -hmm. be a reason for this there has to be something going on yeah a million cognitive distortions are going on as this is happening and as i'm saying that i want everybody to know i'm not justifying what these girls did not in a million years but for me it's always i want to understand what happened because i want it to be able to not happen in the future yeah yeah and it's like we always say you have to be able to hold two things and Mm -hmm. i think this is one of those cases where you know even in the moment that somebody like uh tony was holding two things right Mm -hmm. like just trying to to get through this Mm -hmm. right yeah as 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 however she could trying to cope dissociate whatever yeah you know so kind of back to the situation at shanda's house um steve woke up in the morning not knowing that shanda was missing this whole night right Mm -hmm. um so when steve gets up in the morning and he can't find shanda he's terrified Right. Um, Almost simultaneously, early in the morning, uh, two brothers on a hunting expedition uh, find Shanda's body. Um, Shanda's body is is badly burned at the top half. The bottom half is not uh, in as bad a shape, but the top half is is burned certainly beyond recognizability. Um, Police respond very, very quickly. And the police response, I think, is really interesting. Because uh, the top of Shanda's body was burned beyond recognition, um, the cops assumed that she was much older, in her 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, takes me back to, like, what do you think a 12-year-old girl is supposed to look like? Like, I don't know. I, I had a, a moment where I was very, very, very pissed off by that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Either way, they think that it's a much older woman. 
They also uh, assume that it has to be an out-of-town situation. They immediately went to this idea that it had to be drug dealers coming in from out of town. What? Uh, I know. And, like, disposing of somebody, like, in the countryside because this doesn't happen here. Th- right? That's exactly what I was like. This had to be a this doesn't happen uh-huh. here mentality. It, it 100% was. So that's their mentality. So they um, they begin, I think, almost right away with a sense of impotence about it because mm-hmm. they see it as, like, a drug-related or gang-related situation. Right. Um, so at the same time, there are a couple things going on at the same time. So the brothers discover uh, Shanda's body. Simultaneously, Steve Scherer, Shanda's dad, calls Jackie, her mom, um, and Jackie comes over and they they figure out a game plan. They call the police. Mm-hmm. They um, make a report that Shanda is missing. The third thing happening is that Tony and Hope are terrified, and they also go to the sheriff's office uh, with their parents mm-hmm. and uh, basically confess to the entire thing. They're both super, super shaken up. They're terrified. They uh, describe the events of that night um, to the police. Now, this is happening in Jefferson County. The body is in neighboring uh, Clark County. So uh, this is not the same police department, right? Of course not. Um, Yeah, that are having these things go on. So the girls, they're not very composed. They're not able to keep it together. They're able to say uh, her name is Shanda. They don't know um, anything really about her last name. One of the girls provides uh, what she thought was Shanda's address. She gets the numbers backwards. She says it's 905. It was really 509. Um, but eventually, the um, Jefferson County or the Clark County officers call the Jefferson County officers and are like, Do you have a missing person mm-hmm. that fits this basic description? And uh, um, they say yes. And this is how a preliminary identification of Shanda's body is able to happen. Um, Because she was burned so severely, official identification had to wait for dental records, but that happened Mm -hmm. actually pretty quickly. Um, So when that was officially made, Lori and Melinda were arrested immediately. And uh, the evidence used against them at that point was basically Shanda's body and the statements from the other two girls. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to go in too, too much about what happened in the courtrooms exactly, but I will say this. All four girls were charged. Mm-hmm. All four girls were charged as adults. Mm-hmm. All four accepted plea bargains. Okay. Melinda and Lori mm-hmm. being the two... Um, arbitrators of most of this violence. Yeah. We're both sentenced to 60 years. Okay. Um, I'll talk in a minute about some of the aftermath here. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Because that, that yeah. sentence doesn't surprise me if they got, if they took a plea bargain. Mm-hmm. What about Lori and, or, uh, Tony Hope? and Hope. Yeah, Tony and Hope. We're both also uh, charged as adults. Adults. Uh, Hope Rippey was sentenced to 60 years as well, um, with 10 years suspended. And uh, Lawrence, um, 
Tony Lawrence, she was really interesting. She was able to plea out um, on one count of uh, kidnapping, basically, okay. um, and was sentenced to 20 years. So Melinda, Lori, and um, Hope all get 60 years, and Tony gets 20. Okay. Curious about your take on Tony's sentence. It, it's always going to bug me that Tony didn't do more. Mm-hmm. But it also seems like she was not actively involved in, like, the physical assault. Yeah. She didn't try to stop it, but she didn't participate. Yeah. So, I I understand it. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's I think it's just really, really, really tricky. Like... I don't know. Obviously, she was complicit mm-hmm, in what exactly. happened. I just think there's there's complicit and there's how complicit, and that's where I have trouble. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, hope surprises me that she got as much time, mm-hmm. because it seems like, yes, the, the instigators were definitely Melinda and Lori. Yeah, yeah. Hope definitely... Was active in it, so yeah, yeah. And I think it's really interesting that, like, by most accounts, Melinda was kind of tagged as like the the quote unquote ringleader of everything. But mm-hmm. in everything that I've read and researched, Lori was really the one that inflicted the most physical violence. Yeah. So it's as though Melinda was kind of the influencer of the situation, but Lori was the one bashing her with a tire iron. I didn't talk about how um, Shanda's body was posed, but it was posed in an extremely sexual position, uh, and there was evidence to suggest that she was also sodomized with the tire iron. Um, We don't know who did that. Mm -hmm. Um, Conjecture would lead us to believe that it was Lori, but Mm -hmm. we don't know. Um, It feels like, although Melinda might have instigated and started this... I don't think it would have gone this far without Lori. Yeah. I think Lori was the one that was excited to do it. Yeah. Yeah. She seemed to be weirdly joyful about it. Yes. Yes. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the adult version of all of these girls. Okay. okay. All of these women are now out of prison. Really? Yes. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How are they all out? Well, uh, they're all out on parole. So uh, Tony was out first. She made mm-hmm. parole in 2000, yeah. which obviously makes sense. Um, at, in 2004, Hope Rippey's um, sentence is reduced from 60 to 35 years. Mm-hmm. Um, along this timeline as well, Melinda's lawyer would try to petition for um, a resentencing in her case as well. Um, under the argument that childhood abuse made her basically um, completely have no judgment whatsoever. Okay. Um, that petition failed. So, you know. And I'm going to talk about Melinda's background as well anyway, but um, just putting that out there that they tried and failed on that. Um, so Hope is released on parole in 2006 okay. um, after her sentence is reduced to 35 and 04. Um Lori Tackett makes parole on, and this will make you just 
lose your mind. Obviously, it's a coincidence, but you have to think that they could have thought better about this. She is released on the 26th anniversary of Shanda's murder. Are you kidding me? I wish I was. January 11th, 2018 is when Lori Tackett makes Pearl. Oh my fucking God. Yeah. Most recently, Melinda made Pearl in 2019. Okay. So very, very, very recently. I want to talk a little bit about some of the aftermath here. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Scherer never recovered from the death of Shanda. Yeah. And he essentially drank himself to death. Mm. Um, and he died uh, in the early 2000s. Basically of a broken heart, if you ask me, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, Melinda Loveless, while she was in jail, basically started a therapy dog program. And uh, Jackie, who's Shanda's mom, donated a dog to um, Melissa's or Melinda's program. Okay. Which uh, basically provides service pets to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So um, she did it to honor Shanda's memory, basically, mm-hmm. um, and to try to basically do something good, uh, to have something good come from what happened in this situation. Mm -hmm. The one thing I want to talk about um, that really, really, really grosses me out is um, that actual human piece of shit, Dr. Phil. Oh, fuck Dr. Phil. I know. He aired um, a series about this crime wherein um, almost... So it was basically a setup to allow Jackie... And Shanda's sister to um, rip Hope Rippy apart on air. Um, but they also basically set it up to where Dr. Phil, like, surprises them with Hope Rippy's appearance. Of fucking course he does, because he's a piece yeah. of trash. He is disgusting. Disgusting. What else is interesting about that particular episode is that it also features Amanda Hevron, who... Yeah. Really? Yes. Who Dr. Phil, like, grills, basically, about her implicit guilt in this situation. What's her guilt in this situation? Dr. Phil is basically like, if you knew Melinda wanted to hurt Shanda, why didn't you do anything about it? And Amanda is like, I went to the quote-unquote youth prosecutor and told him... You know, about the situation. What else do you want me to do? Dr. Phil also kind of grills Amanda about um, what I mentioned earlier, that grooming mm-hmm. um, that Shanda's mom, Jackie, kind of believes happened between, you know, by Amanda towards Shanda. Amanda holds very fast that Shanda, this was really interesting and disgusting, um, that Shanda was already sleeping with older boys. So Amanda did not think that what she was doing was wrong. Um, And that um, they had basically a consensual adult relationship. You can't have an adult relationship when you're 14 and 12. I don't think there's enough information to say whether or not she was grooming her or not. No, I don't believe so either. You can say, yes, she was being an irresponsible 14-year-old. Yes, she was Mm -hmm. taking advantage of a younger, more immature girl, whatever. But 
I don't think it's fair to put any onus on Amanda. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think, um, I think that in that interview, Amanda basically seems to me like she's kind of still in that mindset of a 14 year old girl in the sense that she was like, she didn't have the retrospection to say, you know, now I know that I probably shouldn't have had sex with a 12 year old. But back then I didn't know that. You get stuck in your trauma. And Mm -hmm. like, I think, again, it's complicated. Hold two things. Yeah. She had a sexual relationship with a 12 year old at at 14. So like, Mm -hmm. again, that ellipses. But she also lost somebody it sounds like she did care about. Yeah. Who was brutally murdered. And there's blame being put on her. And fuck you, Dr. Phil, Mm -hmm. for putting on a fucking circus about this. Yes. Yes. And I don't want to, like, suggest giving it any airtime. Yeah. But as, like, kind of a sociological study, you can find the clips of this episode of his show on YouTube. Yeah, go downvote them. Yeah, and to kind of see for yourself, like, what I think is a very, very uncomfortable interrogation by Dr. Phil towards Amanda Havren. I just think a teenage girl who experienced something like that, if you did not get the right therapy, Mm -hmm. you are going to be stuck in that trauma. You are going to be stuck emotionally 14. Yeah, and I I think if you look at, like, Amanda's social media and stuff like that, she does kind of read like she's stuck in that time, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, she's, like, 45, probably, Mm -hmm. Um, but still stuck, I think, in many ways. Stuck. Um, What would you guess would be uh, what Melinda's childhood was like? I want to talk about this for a few minutes here. You had mentioned trauma, so I'm going to go trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, probably trauma, a lot of lack of support, probably some neglect, um, likely sexual abuse, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much all of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, Melinda was born to Margie and Larry Loveless. She was the third of three girls. Larry Loveless was a disgusting person who, um, basically throughout his entire marriage to Margie, uh, raped her several times, um, raped her with inanimate objects, forced her to have sex with his friends, forced her into orgies. Um, there is one incident where he forces her to have sex with no less than 20 of his friends outside at a railroad tracks. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Um, And he is uh, a severe alcoholic. Margie, the mom, I think does her best in that situation that she possibly can. Uh, She never quite builds up the wherewithal to leave him. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether or not she knew what was going on with her girls, who knows. But Larry slept with all of the girls like in the same bed for as long as he could the older two girls uh saw a lot of larry's absolute worst times by the time melinda came around larry and margie were in this season of like coming back together in their marriage and joined um an uh, a big fundamentalist kind of mega church 
wherein Larry like allegedly kind of turned his life around. This was the Larry that Melinda knew, mm-hmm. a church leader, her good dad. Um, she knew him as a recovered alcoholic. She did not know him the way that her two older sisters and the mom knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was extremely close to Larry. Um, Larry did molest her, mm-hmm. but Melinda had this relationship with Larry where she idolized him um, and was very much like very obsessed with him. Uh, at one point in Melinda's childhood, Larry left the family after he kind of sank back into his alcoholism, sank back into his deviant sexual behavior, um, and moves to Florida. During that time is when Melinda really falls off the rails. Yeah. She is, um, you know, like I said, obsessed with her dad, misses her dad terribly, falls in love with Amanda Heverin because Amanda reminds her of Larry. Okay. Amanda even looks like Larry Loveless. Really? At that time. Yeah, at that time. Um, so Melinda holds to Amanda out of this association with Amanda and Larry. Similar personalities, similar physical stature, that sort of stuff. That's what Melinda will say mm-hmm. that kind of caused that kind of, you know, the the heat that she had in that relationship towards Amanda. Lori Tackett was raised in a very, very, very strict Pentecostal household. Um, Extremely uh, unforgiving, strict parents. She claims that she blacked out her entire childhood, aside from two incidences of molestation that went along with some hallucinations for her. Mm -hmm. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. All of the four girls had some history of self-harm. Yeah. Um, I don't know as much about Tony or Hope's background, um, but we do know that all four girls had some degree of self-harm. In the aftermath of everything, Melinda Loveless, in the couple of uh, media appearances that she has made, has appeared to be extremely ashamed of and remorseful for what happened to Shanda. Okay. Lori holds fast to it her role being one of a girl under melinda's peer pressure Mm. i think that's the biggest crock of shit i've ever heard in my life that's a fucking lie yes yes it is um all of them aside from tony have responded to like media requests for their time yeah in one degree or another you can find news interviews with all of them tony has tried very much to keep her profile low. Uh, can't say I blame her. I don't blame no. her at all. Yeah. Yeah. So all that to say that while that was a case that happened, you know, in the early 90s, one thing that I found to be really, really frustrating while researching this case um, was that many people call this case the original Mean Girls case. This was why I was really hesitant to talk about how the girls looked. Yeah. Was because, and I, I bring this up at the end, not the beginning. Yes. Because the fact that this is how that case is known and how it's been like, um, I want to say parodied because that implies comedy, but how it's been like borrowed or adapted for television or screen or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plays on the idea that these are like 
like beautiful teenage girls that are just being mean or just being bullied or bullies to this other girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what's really going on here is so much more complicated and nuanced than that. There is so and, much trauma swirling around yes. with this group of teenage girls. Yes. And when you talk about trauma and you talk about friendships, talk about fucking trauma bonds. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah. about like how that fucks up your fear system and like your ability to walk away and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just feel like reducing it to this idea of like, this is the original mean girls makes it come off to me as though, again, it's about like beautiful girls bullying each other. I'm pretty sure there's an SVU episode. Mean. Yeah. 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 Based on Mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Mean. And I know I've seen it done on um, Women Who Kill. Mm-hmm. And I think I've heard a couple of podcasts about it, and it is very mm-hmm. much kind of portrayed that way. Yeah, yeah. And really what we're talking about is trauma. We're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, and Melinda, I believe, did in one interview say that she did not think that she was capable of this if she hadn't have been severely abused and had seen acts of severe violence in her own childhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most people because, aren't capable without yeah. seeing it. And Most those people. girls, yeah. the, the loveless girls did witness their father rape their mother on numerous occasions in the household. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they know, they knew what they were looking at from a very young age. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like, there's also, I think this like, kind of satanic panic angle that I see in some <laughs> portrait, you know, portraits of this where yeah. it's like, and Lori brought out the rune stones and she read their fortunes, you know? Um, which again, like, I feel like every take I've seen on this is so like tries to put the finest point ever on it. And that's why I wanted to tell it without drawing any of those conclusions. You I know? feel like, Everybody who talks about not just this case, but similar cases has like never met or at least just like gotten to know a teenage or preteen girl. Mm-hmm. Like, hi, podcast out there. I am here for to be a consultant. I have. Yeah, I have expertise on this. I'm here to be a consultant. If you want to write teenage <laughs> girls and trauma, let me know. I'm here yeah. for it. That's her middle name. Teenage girls and trauma. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Yeah, it's on our um, business cards. <laughs> here's my business cards. I have actual degrees, not just trauma. But it, it is. It's like, okay, let's make this as reductive as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also feels like let's kind of like glamorize or put a veil over something that was actually like incredibly ugly and like the just the hilt of cruelty like what happened mm-hmm. to this girl is to my mind one of the most like i think about it in the context of like a sylvia likens case yeah where like we're looking at something that's on a very similar level of cruelty and brutality and dehumanization um and it's on that scale where i think calling it something like the mean girls case or something like that really takes away from what actually happened yeah. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. It's hard for me to get past this point because, you know, 
you're a true crime fan, you know all the biggies, you know your Unabomber, you know your Ted Bundy's, all of this. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them, people will dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. Oh, why did they do this? Why are they like this? Is mm-hmm. it because of this like two-week period as a child that they were hospitalized and couldn't see their parent? Is it because of this, because they once got dumped? Was it because- Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, you look at cases like this and you're like, Look at all of the trauma. Like, no, they must have just been mean girl bullies. Right. And I think when you look at the two ringleaders with Melinda, Mm -hmm. it's look at all this trauma. Look at the fact that she was so, had this like really troubled but strong bond with her dad. Mm -hmm. And here was Amanda who represented, I think came in at the time that Larry had left, was very much a transitional transitional object Mm -hmm. for her. Um, so you look at her on the one hand, and then you look at Lori Tackett, who at one point did say in a, uh, court appearance that she felt like she was meant to kill. Mm-hmm. So you look at the mental illness from Lori Tackett, mm-hmm. and you look at the utter trauma from mm-hmm. Melinda Loveless, and those two coming together is like a perfect storm yeah. Yeah. of a situation, right? And then, I mean, I can't explain Hope Rippy. I don't know enough about her to explain her. Yeah, I can't explain her. I think that she had a a devilish curiosity mm-hmm. about her. Um, but other than that, other than the fact that we know that she had a history of self harm, that's really like the only thing that we know her that know of her that alludes to trauma. Yeah. Um, other than some of like the kind of quote unquote like normal childhood traumas, I say that obviously with air quotes, like divorced parents, for example. You know, well, and also, and you can self harm without having trauma. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's we don't know enough, and again, I feel like I have to say this all the time because I don't want people to think like we're excusing this or no. we're saying it doesn't matter, but. I think you and I both really care about the why. Yes. Yeah. And that's really what we want to know is why did this happen? Yeah. It's and not always is, about punishment. Yeah. It's not. I think it's also one of those cases that like what makes the why uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable is that like we want to think of these things as, as exotic as possible mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. things that, you know, everyday people quote unquote could or, you know, could or would do. Yeah. Yeah. I think cases like this are very, very uncomfortable for us in that way, oh, you know, yes. because it suggests that like this is this is a real thing that happened. This is a real thing that can happen. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And everything that came along with it is real stuff that can happen. The mm-hmm. trauma, the jealousy, the relation, the trauma bonding, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. We like to think of like crime is over there. Sociopaths are over there. Mm-hmm. No, they're right here with the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah, they sure are. And most of the time, it doesn't come to a head like this, but sometimes it does. Yeah. So on that happy note, <laughs> welcome to season two of Midwretched. Yes. That, uh, that was such a good starter, though. Was it? Holy shit. That was such a good starter. I was going to ask how you thought it went after being out of practice for so long. It was so good. I missed this. I missed Me making too. my brain neurons work. I know. I feel like I'm actually, like, a person again and not just, like, um, a hospital, like, NICU mom 
breast pumping machine. I was about to say, like, how does it feel to, like, turn those gears again in your brain? Feels really good. My titties hurt, but it feels really good otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably let you uh, take care of those titties. Yeah, I don't want to do it on camera, so <laughs> I, I should probably go to bed. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. Uh, okay. Let's talk so about next So what's happening next, next time. Yeah. Oh, we need to get, we need to, like, start, like, drifting on our segues again. I know. We were so good at that. We're so good at that. Anyway, we'll and do now, it. We'll get there. Yeah, we will. So next week is actually um, a listener request. Oh, very so good. So a listener request from way back in the way back before our little hiatus. So we are, for this one, actually going to be Joe going slightly outside of the Midwest. But what? since since it was a listener request, I granted it approval. <laughs> and because it pulled on every little bitty heartstring that I have. Okay. And I don't okay. have many. That's true. There's like four of them. And so if it pulled on one, <laughs> no, just kidding. You are the biggest, like, you think you are so hardcore, but you are fluffy nougat 100% of the way. Uh, I am. Sorry. I am. I have this like hard shell of bitter chocolate and then it's just like all fluffy nougat. And it it's is. like the She's thinnest like candy, like Reese's Pieces shell too. It is. Yeah. It doesn't take a whole lot to get in there, but once you get in there, it's just like nougat everywhere. Anyway, so we're going to Colorado. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Slightly. It's a little bit outside the Midwest. It's over Slightly. in Squaresies. That's like so many states away. I mean, Midwest ends with Minnesota. Dakotas, but okay. Okay. <laughs> Dang it. Anyway, just talk about the story. I'm going to shut up now. Anyway, we're going over to Squaresies. And we're going to talk about the happiest man on death row. Oh, God. And that's all I'm going to tell you. Oh, I know this. Oh, God. Yeah. You know oh, the story. No. Yeah. Oh, no. I dude. told you. When a listener requested it, I had to. Yeah, you're right. And the heart is going to hurt. The oh, heart my God. is going to hurt. So if you like pain, come back. <laughs> For uh, the next segment of Midfretched that will give you... You will cry. Oh, you will cry. You will cry. There's going to be a lot of feels. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I can't believe you're doing this. Okay. I'm going to have to really prepare myself. <laughs> you have to blame the listener that requested it because I would yeah. not have if he hadn't requested it. But you know what? Also, kudos to that person because it's a really interesting and I would argue a very, very important story to tell. So. An incredibly important story to tell. Yeah. So come I'm with back. it. I'm with it. I approve. Even though you didn't ask me. Even though we're partners. Whatever. Whatever. Come okay. back to hear so. the story of the happiest man on death row. Yeah. You will not regret it. I promise you. Yeah. I promise you. So with that. Yeah. Look, we're back, you guys. Um, which means. And, like, we're back. And we didn't mean to take a hiatus, right? Like, it was an intentional choice, but in uh, a situation of duress. So. Mm-hmm. You know, at this point, it is really important if you love us to uh, share the love on the socials because we're trying to we know, crawl out yeah. of the ashes of our lives, basically. We have an empire to rebuild, clearly. <laughs> we do. So please help us do that. Uh, follow us, like us. Uh, we're at Midwretched everywhere. We love to hear from people. Um, and like from the bottom of my heart, at least, I if you're here... I really, really appreciate it because this project means a lot to me and uh, 
I'm just glad to be sharing it with you, whoever you are. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for helping this NICU mom feel like a human again. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Because it's hard to feel human. So, oh, it feels good to say this. (laughs) Be nice. Eat cheese. We love love you. You You have no idea. (laughs) 